I wanted to preach the whole chapter, and I can kind of guide how long my sermons are going to be by how many words are in my document. And, um, you know, the first thing I kind of do is copy and paste the text into the document, and then I watch the word count grow and grow and grow. And it was growing a lot this morning. Um or today, so we'll just cover the first uh, 20 verses today, and we'll cover the riot in Ephesus next week, which is just fine, I think. We're going to spend now these two weeks in Ephesus, so let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. So the folklore, or kind of the mythical tradition behind Ephesus, is that it was founded by Amazons, those ancient female warriors. I didn't believe Amazons were real until I watched the movie Wonder Woman, and now I know they're real, so maybe they founded Ephesus. Who knows? (laughs) But Ephesus as we know it, as a a city as far back as history takes us, goes back um, to about 1100 B.C. So 1100 years before Paul was there. Um, Alexander the Great conquered it in 334 BC, and we find by the first century when Paul's there, it's one of the, if not the richest city in the region. Um, it's the capital of the, prov- of the Roman province of Asia Minor, and Ephesus controlled all the commerce and finance in the region. So think something kind of like New York City. Ephesus had its Wall Street, right? It also had its Broadway and its Yankee Stadium. (coughs) Ephesus was so important that mile markers found on highways throughout the region are measured from Ephesus. Next week, we'll hear a story that takes place in the theater in Ephesus. This is not a movie theater. It's an outdoor amphitheater, but unlike any I've ever seen in person. I'm thinking of the kinds that are like at uh, city parks and those sorts of things. It's more like a small professional baseball stadium. It held about 24,000 people at its peak. Every year in early spring, Ephesus hosted an event called the Artemisia. It was a festival filled with music, filled with uh, drama, theatrical productions, and athletic events, all to honor their goddess Artemis, or the Roman name is Diana. Most important to Ephesus, however, was their identity as the keeper, and we'll see this next week, the keeper of the temple of Artemis. They were made kind of custodians of the temple of Artemis. This temple was called the Artemisian. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest building period in the Greek world. It measured about 220 feet by 425 feet. I'd already multiplied it out. It's almost 100,000 square feet, made entirely from marble. It had 127 columns the tallest of which, kind of in the middle, because it was a slanted kind of thing, were 60 feet tall, all made out of marble. Ephesus honored the strong. Ephesus honored the affluent, the wealthy, 
the educated, the sophisticated. Now Paul is going to bring Jesus to them. This Jesus, right, was poor. He wasn't affluent. He suffered and he died without defending himself. And he was rumored to have been raised from the dead, right? Foolishness to the Greeks, we're told. Not only that, but his followers meet together, right, without respect for the class and status of its members. Slaves are treated as free, and the wealthy followers of Jesus serve. People from different classes, men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, share meals together. And they don't meet in impressive buildings, but in homes. So how is Paul going to bring this Jesus into the shadow of the Artemisian, into the shadow, into the city that sits in the shadow of this temple? What will happen when Paul's message of the good news of God's kingdom confronts the worship of Artemis and the worldview of the pagan culture there? What I want us to see is that the gospel prevails in Ephesus, and that's kind of the theme of today's message. The gospel prevails in Ephesus, and it prevails not because Paul is some kind of slick salesman of the gospel, not because he reshapes the gospel to fit it into the civil religion of Ephesus, but because Paul and his companions, because he's not alone in this task, are faithful to their calling and are faithful to endure regardless of the success and regardless of the opposition they face. In fact, what we see and what we have seen in Acts is that God's kingdom, as it grows now on this earth, in that kingdom, success and opposition are not opposites, really. Opposition often leads to the growth and the spread of the gospel and the strengthening of the church. So I'm going to take this in a few sections. I'll read it for you, and then we'll talk about it. The first section is verses uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul went through the inland regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples there and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They replied, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about twelve men in all. What I think Luke is doing here is presenting to us a story of how the gospel, how God and his kingdom prevail in Ephesus, but he does so in steps or stages. And these stages are in order from the most receptive to the least receptive. These disciples that Paul comes upon are the most receptive. In fact, in many ways, we could say 
they're almost there already. There's a little bit debate of debate among scholars as to whether we should understand these people as being already believers in Jesus. They just need a little bit more information or if this story presents their conversion. There's also a desire to kind of relate what these disciples or where these disciples are to where Apollos was in, in the last chapter. Um, because the, we're told that Apollos knows the baptism of John. Um, and I don't know for sure what we should think about this. Um, we're given a lot more information about Apollos. I don't see what goes on with Apollos, as I said last week, as his conversion. He seemed to be just lacking some knowledge about some of the benefits of the Holy Spirit, maybe. And Priscilla and Aquila teach him, and then he goes on to do what he was doing before, preaching boldly. This story we have today seems maybe a little bit more like a conversion account. Um, but in the way Luke presents it, he's presenting them as they're the most receptive, right? They're almost there already. They've already responded in faith to what they do know, right? They know something about what John the Baptist was preaching, now, there are some important realities that they don't know, but they receive it when Paul teaches them. Paul finds these men perhaps while they were worshiping or praying or doing something, right, to indicate that they were believers of some sort. Paul asked them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, and their reply indicates that they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Probably a shocking answer to Paul, because if you were a disciple even of John the Baptist, John's message was, I'm preparing the way for the one who's coming after me, right? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So it's a little confusing about what's going on there. Here, He learns that they had only received John's baptism. Again, it's difficult to read between the lines here. If they were disciples of John the Baptist, they should have been well-versed in both Jesus and the Holy Spirit because of what John proclaimed. Whatever the case, though, notice that Paul doesn't instruct them about the Holy Spirit. He tells them, he instructs them about Jesus. They immediately accept Paul's teaching about Jesus, and they're baptized in his name. And then Paul lays his hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. The evidence for their reception of the Holy Spirit in this case was speaking in tongues and prophesying. This kind of reception of the Holy Spirit occurs in important moments in the book of Acts. For example, when the Holy Spirit first descends, descends upon the Jews in Acts chapter 2, we see this kind of display, tongues and prophecy. Uh, when the first Gentiles, Cornelius and those in his home, receive the Holy Spirit. And now in Ephesus, which is a very strategic city for the growth of the gospel in the early church. I think at least one thing Luke is doing, this, doing in this passage, though, and the way he tells the story, especially of Paul laying his hands on these, on these men and their reception of the Holy Spirit, is that he is connecting Paul to the other apostles. He's legitimizing Paul in some respect. Remember that Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus like the 12 
were. He wasn't an apostle like them. He connects himself to the twelve because of his witness of the risen Jesus, but he says that he does so as one who was born at the wrong time, he says in 1 Corinthians, indicating that he came about his apostleship in an unusual or an abnormal way from being a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of the way. He sees himself, because of this, as the least of the apostles. So when he lays his hands on these dozen or so men, they receive the Holy Spirit. When he does this, he's following in the footsteps of men like Peter and John back in Acts chapter 8. Luke wants us to know that this is an important event and that Paul is the real deal, that his apostleship is totally legitimate just in case we didn't understand that already. Paul confronts and corrects ignorance in this first episode, but he faces, notice he faces no opposition, right? I mean, what a fantastic start to his mission in Ephesus. These men are ready and willing to hear and to believe and to be baptized. But as Paul works his way through the rest of Ephesus, it won't be quite as easy, which brings us to verses 8 through 10. So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke out fearlessly for three months, addressing and convincing them about the kingdom of God. But when some were stubborn and refused to believe, reviling the way before the congregation, he left them and took the disciples with him, addressing them every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now, it shouldn't be surprising to us at this point that Paul enters the synagogue. Remember that Paul has already spoken in this synagogue, though only briefly when he stopped in Ephesus to drop off Aquila and Priscilla. The Jews apparently liked what they heard then, or were at least curious, and remember they asked Paul to stay. Paul couldn't stay, but he did promise to return if God willed it. Now he returns, and after three months, they are no longer asking him to stay. He has worn out his welcome in the synagogue in Ephesus. He's trying to persuade and to reason with them, to convince them about the kingdom of God, about the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah and that their allegiance must be to him as their king and as their deliverer. Some believe, but others were told were stubborn, that they refused to believe and and they began to speak evil of the way to the rest of the congregation. The word used here for stubborn is actually the word for hardened. It's the same word used of Pharaoh during the Exodus and of the Israelites during their wilderness wandering. So after three months of hearing Paul teach, their problem's not lack of knowledge, Their problem is hearts hardened against God. Hardened hearts refuse to believe, but aren't content to stop there, right? They're not just content in their refusal. These synagogue Jews want to spread their message as much as Paul wants to spread his, and they do so by speaking evil against Paul to the rest of the congregation. So Paul realizes that his time in the synagogue has come to an end. He takes those who have believed, he calls them disciples, 
and he moves to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which would have been a public lecture hall. Maybe you could rent it, something like that. Notice the progression here. He begins in Ephesus with a small group of men who are eager to hear what he has to say and act on it. They're already close to Jesus when Paul finds them. Right then he goes to the Jews. A little further away from this group eager to listen and eager to learn. But remember that Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The Holy Spirit first descended on Jews. Most of Paul's companions are Jews. And when Paul speaks to the Jews, he doesn't have to tell them a new story. He just has to tell them how Jesus has fulfilled the old story. Right? They share a common language and a common history. He doesn't have to explain to them who Abraham and Moses were. They know who David is. They know about the Sabbath and about circumcision and about all the custom. Paul shares a lot of context with these Jews to whom he's speaking. So he doesn't have to tell them an entirely new story. He just has to tell them how Jesus has fulfilled the old one. Now he's in a public lecture hall. And I'm sure some Jews were still listening to him, but his audience would have included large, a large number of Greeks as well. Gentiles. Gentiles didn't share the old story. They likely didn't know who Abraham and Moses and David were. They didn't come from a monotheistic religious background. Gentiles don't share that old story, so Paul had to tell them a new story. We see how he does this back in uh, back when he's in Athens, right? That's a great example of how Paul tells the story of Jesus in a way that Greeks could understand. But in some ways, now Paul's task has become more difficult. But he remains faithful to it. We're told he preaches for two years from this lecture hall. Two years. A lot happens in these two years. Luke tells us that because of it, everyone in the province heard the word of the Lord. Both Jews and Greeks. I don't know the population of the province. The population of Ephesus at this time is estimated to be about 200 to 250,000 people. This brings us to the next section, verses 11 through 20. This is quite a story. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. So that when even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his body were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. But some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were possessed by evil spirits, saying, I sternly warn you by Jesus whom Paul preaches... Now, seven sons of a man named Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. But the evil spirit replied to them, I know about Jesus 
and I am acquainted with Paul, but who are you? Then the man who was possessed by the evil spirit jumped on them and beat them all into submission. He prevailed against them so that they fled from the house naked and wounded. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear came over them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Many of those who had believed came forward, confessing and making their deeds known. Large numbers of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them up in the presence of everyone. When the value of the books was added up, it was found to total 50,000 silver coins. In this way, the word of the Lord continued to grow in power and to prevail. What I think we have now is kind of a break in the action. The good news of God's kingdom prevailed among those men who knew only of John the Baptist's baptism. The good news of God's kingdom prevailed in the synagogue in spite of the hardening, the unbelief, and the evil speaking of some. The good news of God's kingdom prevails in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, so that everyone in the province, Jews and Greeks, hear the word of the Lord. Now Luke turns our attention to the power of God and the working of some extraordinary miracles. When you think about miracles occurring outside of the book of Acts, what do you think about? Accounts of miracles are spread throughout the story of Scripture, but they seem to be concentrated in the New Testament, in Acts, and in the ministry of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, miracles are concentrated in the story of the Exodus and also in prophetic confrontations with false gods and false prophets. I really see all of that going on here. The miracles that God works through the hands of the apostles certainly indicate their continuity with the ministry of Jesus. And just as Jesus is the new and better Moses, and just as the cross and resurrection are the new and better Exodus, we have miracles concentrated as the word of the Lord enters and grows into new territory. In this territory, false gods will be confronted by the power of the one true God. So all of that is going on here, I think. I also believe that Luke's giving us a glimpse into some of the heavenly realities or spiritual realities behind the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. All kinds of people, men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, are turning to Jesus They are pledging their allegiance and loyalty to him through the teaching and preaching of Paul and other followers of Jesus. And this is what we can see. What we can't see, at least not usually, is the spiritual battles that go along with this progress of the gospel, this progress of the kingdom. The gospel is prevailing in the hearts of all kinds of people, but it's also prevailing in the spiritual or the supernatural realm. Luke is careful to tell us that God was performing these miracles by Paul's hands. God is the primary mover here. God's power in this was so dynamic that even Paul's sweat rags, these aren't like handkerchiefs he had in his suit pocket, right, for decoration. 
These are sweat rags. Maybe he wore them while he worked making tents. It's hot in Turkey. We're in the probably late spring here, maybe early summer. It's hot. You've seen the preachers with the sweat rags while they're preaching. I don't know what it was, but they're sweat rags. Even those, when touched, healed the sick and cast evil spirits out of the oppressed. Now, do any of you hear that and you automatically think to some televangelists from the 80s and 90s? I've seen it even more recently, right? You can make a vow of faith to their ministry and they'll send you a cloth that they've prayed over. And now you can get it and be healed and have your miracle. There's one on TV now for these little packets of holy water. It's kind of a remote healing. A lot of us are getting used to remote learning these days, right? It's healing you don't even have to be in person for, right? Well, that's not what's going on with Paul. He's not touching as many rags as he can to send out to as many people as he can who will write a check to support his ministry. Luke could not be more clear that the ability, the power, is God's. Paul is his servant, his vessel. God is the primary mover here. And the power is such that even though it's working through Paul, it doesn't have to work through Paul. So instead of reading this and seeing this mention of the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul's body, now having the power to heal as they go out to people, I think just because of my enculturation with the televangelism kind of stuff here's like i see it oh this we've got to be careful not to exalt paul here i think luke's kind of doing just the opposite he's removing paul from the power right so the fact that these cloths that have touched paul now have kind of a remote ability ability to heal to heal tells us even more about the power of god to heal He works through Paul's hands, but he doesn't have to work through Paul's hands. Luke is clear. The power is God's. Even though it's working through Paul, it doesn't have to work through Paul. The fact that some are healed or liberated from evil spirits because they have touched Paul's sweat rags, rather than exalting Paul, actually distances Paul from these miracles. If the miracles can occur outside of Paul's presence, away from his physical touch then it's clear that he is not the source of the power. So I hope you see that here. Again, given sort of my history with, we used to have parties, and like Christian parties in high school, but we'd get a kick out of watching these guys on TV sometimes. And some of us were known to make a prank call into the hotline number occasionally. So if we remove ourselves from that kind of image, right, we see that the the issue here with the handkerchiefs and aprons actually is distancing Paul and drawing our attention to God as the source of these healings. These healings and exorcisms and other extraordinary miracles by the power of God are an indication that God's kingdom is making an impact on the unseen, the spiritual realm, just as it is in the earthly realm. 
This is further confirmed by the almost funny story. I heard some of you laugh when I was reading it. I laughed too. About the seven sons of Sceva. These seven brothers probably falsely claim that their father is a Jewish high priest. They also claim to have the ability to cast demons out of people, which wasn't unheard of during the first century. They've obviously witnessed what's been going on with Paul and the display of God's power through him, so they decide to try it for themselves. Right? They want the same power. They hear Paul using the name of Jesus, so they invoke Paul's Jesus over some who were possessed by evil spirits. And the outcome wasn't what they expected, to say the least. We're told that the evil spirit replies, I know about Jesus, and I'm acquainted with Paul, but who are you? It's funny. Not the response they were hoping for. But any humor in this story fades a bit as these possessed as this possessed man beats the seven sons into submission, wounding them, ripping off their robes so that they are running away naked and bleeding. Notice, first of all, here that the evil spirit or the evil spirits know Jesus and Paul. That's not a minor detail. As the story of Jesus through the faithfulness of Paul is making an impact in the city of Ephesus, even the spirits are affected. Even the spirits know the name. Notice also that seven sons of a high priest lose to a bunch of sweat rags. Right? They can't do what inanimate objects could do. Not only can they not replicate what they see one man doing, they can't even replicate what his sweat rags were doing. Why? Well, again, because the power doesn't belong to Paul. The power can't be manipulated by these seven sons of Sceva. No one names their kid Sceva. I've never heard of it. It's a good biblical name if you're looking for one. <laughs> yeah. But it, it has a certain ring to it, right? It fits in the story, I think. Uh, yeah. These Jews reflect what is really a very pagan view of God. That God's power can be manipulated according to the will of men yeah. by speaking a certain formula or invoking certain names. They learn the hard way that God is sovereign over his power. So this story of what happened with these seven sons of Sceva spreads. Even the evil spirits, as we said, know Jesus and Paul. The response of both Jews and Greeks to this reality is fear and the name of the Lord being praised. Now, Luke doesn't give us the details we want here. Is this a reference to a mass conversion or just maybe an increasing, even momentary reverence to the power of God that they're witnessing? In verse 18, we see people coming forward. 
Are they doing so because they've believed as a result of seeing or hearing the story about the seven sons of Sceva? Or had they already believed? And now this story is motivating them, is moving them to mature in their faith, to take a huge step in their sanctification and their obedience to the Lord. I don't know completely. Luke's focus isn't on answering these questions for us. I think the best reading of this story is to understand those coming forward as having already believed. The verb here, which is actually a participle if you're a grammar nerd, indicates it's a past action that has ongoing results. So I think that they had already believed through Paul's teaching or through some other teacher, maybe from the synagogue, maybe from the lecture hall or wherever. And this event has prompted them to realize that their practice of magic is incompatible with their turning to follow Jesus. In other words, they are maturing Christians. They're growing in their faith and in their submission to the will of God. But it's also possible that these are new converts who have believed in response to seeing or hearing of this story. But either way, we see this powerful, tangible display of public affection, public confession, and really repentance. First of all, we're told they confess and they make their deeds known. Their deeds referring to the practice of magic. Ephesus was known for its magic. There were secret mysteries connected to the worship of Artemis, to the Artemis cults. Now, one way in their worldview to cause your magic to lose its power was to make it known publicly, Mm. was to reveal what was hidden and secret only for you. So what, what we see here, these Ephesians, they're not just confessing that they were practitioners of magic, but they're revealing their secrets, which would render them powerless. On top of that, they are voluntarily burning their books that contained these secrets. And someone there, it reminds me a little bit of Judas in the story where the, where the woman breaks her perfume, anoints Jesus, and Judas is like, hey, like we could have used all that money and like bought food and stuff, you know. Someone's a counter here. <laughs> we don't know who it is. Someone adds up the value of these books, and it's 50,000 silver coins or 50,000 days' wages. Why does Luke bother to give us their value? What's the point? I think it's this, right? You can confront my theology, right? You can question my psychology. You can challenge my ethics. But don't touch my wallet. This public display of confession and repentance of turning from the old way toward Jesus is going to cause the Ephesians, as we'll see next week, to literally count the cost of the prevailing gospel on their pocketbooks. There's going to be a riot all because of what the Ephesian silversmiths 
calculated that it would cost them with all these people turning to Jesus. What I want to focus on today, however, is what happens when the gospel prevails. Right? It prevails in the life of Paul, as we see in his faithful endurance and his obedience to the will of God. The gospel prevails in the life of believers as they turn from their old story to Jesus and to his story. It prevails in the spiritual realm as God displays his power over evil. How does it prevail at Hillside Bible Chapel? Almost 2,000 years later? But not much has changed, really. The gospel still prevails in the faithful, enduring proclamation of the word of the Lord. It continues to prevail in your life and in my life as we turn and follow Jesus and the story of his kingdom. As we do this, we know that the gospel is prevailing in ways and in realms that we don't often see. And I hope you find that encouraging. I hope it fills you with some hope and expectation for what the power of God can accomplish through regular people like you and like me. There's also a warning here. Did you know that during his time in Ephesus, during these two, two and a half years, it's also the time where other churches in Asia Minor were planted? Churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3. In Revelation, John, right, is recording his vision. Part of that vision consists of letters to seven real churches. And John's probably writing this about 40 years after Paul or his associates planted these churches. 40 years, just 40 years, right? After men and women turned to Jesus, after seeing almost unbelievable displays of God's power. Forty years back then is about a generation. So these churches are not far at all removed from their beginnings. Yet John says to the church, and I'm going to summarize here a little bit. He says to the church in Ephesus, right? They've done some things well, but you have left your first love. In 40 years, 40 years after witnessing this, they've left their first love. To the church in Pergamum, he says that they're allowing Balaam, leading them into idolatry and immorality. 40 years, 40 years. The church in Thyatira is tolerating some kind of false prophetess and have also become involved in immorality and idolatry. The church in Sardis is dead, John says. The church in Laodicea is lukewarm and is in danger of being spit out of God's mouth. The God's call to these churches is to remember. Remember where you came from. Remember what you did at first. The call to these churches is to repent. Only 40 years after their powerful and miraculous beginnings, 
Five of these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are in peril. Do you know what's left of the Temple of Artemis today? If you Google it, you'll see something. But the answer is almost nothing. In fact, so little was left that in the late 1860s, when or in the 1860s, when archaeologists from the British, sponsored by the British Museum, started looking for it, it took them six years to find it. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world, a hundred thousand square feet of pure marble, 60 feet high, and it took six years to find it. All that stands today is really a single column. And that was reconstructed from fragments. There's also some pieces of it at the British Museum. They have a room where they put some things together. You know, this is what eventually happens to temples made by human hands, to house gods made by human imaginations. And our churches will suffer a similar fate. If the God we worship and the God we serve and the God we pray to and the God we claim to follow is simply the God of our imagination, if it's only the God that we've created in our image, if it's a God who can be managed and manipulated. However, when the one true God builds a church, it endures. Luke tells us in verse 20, in this way, this is going to be a little bit different from your translation. In fact, it's different from the translation I read when I read it the first time. In this way, the word spreads and grows in power according to the power of God. I can't figure out why translators connect the God, some change it to Lord, to the word rather than to the power. In the Greek, it's not the word of the Lord, but it's according to the power of God. The emphasis in this passage has been on the power of God. The word doesn't spread and churches don't grow and endure because of Paul's eloquence or because of his wisdom, because of the strategic plan of men, or because it's full of movers and shakers, leaders and influencers. The word spreads because of the power of God. In fact, Paul connects the gospel to the power of God, explicitly in Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. The church built by the power of God upon the gospel of God in Jesus Christ will endure. Let us be that kind of church. Would you pray with me? Father, so many in here know the history of, of this church uh, so much better than I do. 
And some have been here for much of it. Lord, and for that history, we're grateful. Um, People change. Sometimes buildings change. Leaders change. But the presence of your Holy Spirit here in Port Lyons through through your people, regardless of buildings and regardless of leaders and regardless of all kinds of different things, means that your church has endured. And not because the people here are smarter or better or more influential, but purely because of your grace, because of your promise to build your church. Through your gospel, which is your power for salvation for everyone who believes. So thank you for that history here. We pray for the future of this church. Again, leaders may change. People move in and out. But I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people now who recognize your power in the gospel, not in our plans, not in our personalities, but in your plan for salvation, that we would live that out in such a way now that this church would continue to endure for generations. And Father, I pray that as we see your gospel spread, as your church strengthen and grow, that we would also recognize that there's a spiritual battle going on as well. One that maybe we don't think about as often as we should, one that we don't often see or perceive, but is nonetheless real. Pray that you would help us in that battle choose our weapons wisely, not the weapons of this world, that we would understand that our enemies are not people, not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and evil authorities in the spiritual realm. Help us to be faithful to you in that battle as well. Father, work your power through us so that in the end, someday, even hundreds of years from now, until you return, really, however long that may be, there will always be someone here telling the story of how the gospel prevailed in Port Lyons, Alaska. Thank you for your grace and your patience with us in this task. Help us to be faithful to you as we look to Jesus, the ultimate faithful one, as our example. In his name we pray. Amen.